Hey, folks, welcome to the season four finale, episode 22. Season five kicks ass. <laughs> I should just leave that in. Autocorrect. Sorry, folks, it's late here in Iowa as I'm recording this. Let's try that again. Season five kicks off next week on Tuesday, September 6th with our second campfire episode. I'm still looking for more tunes, stories, poems, or simply a shout out. So if you're contemplating it, please send something in. It'll be fun to share, so why not? As we say farewell to August and fall approaches with its cooler temps and brilliant color palettes, I feel a seasonal shift in my own day-to-day life. I've been journaling and reading more, swapping out my phone for a book or audiobook, and it's been nice. And in doing so, I've been pondering some things. Like, when was the last time you did something fully liberating? What have you gained an entirely new perspective on? Or whose hand do you wish you could hold if given the chance? And why do we skip the letter E in the U.S. grading system? What rocket fuel has life handed you? What opportunity have you taken hold of and ran with? Maybe it's yet to come. My dad always said growing up, run like the wind. Take off into whatever you're seeking. You are capable. I found myself surrounded by that same mentality while on staff at Philmont Scout Ranch. And so did today's guest. Alex Ave Lalamont has lived and traveled all over the world as a Foreign Service officer. He shares a witty and insightful interview revealing how impactful our time on staff really is. As a young 14-year-old, Alex was tested on the trail. His crew pushed him to lead, and he found himself building confidence and accomplishing more than he ever thought he could. Alex spent five summers in the ranger department and one summer in the backcountry. Infused with the spirit of adventure, positivity, and camaraderie, Alex saw the backcountry staffed camps as the organs and the rangers as the lifeblood of the Philmont experience. As Rayado Trek coordinator for two summers in 96 and 97, Alex witnessed the Rayado program build confidence in youth in a genuine, non-performative way, giving participants a unique and energetic rocket fuel for life. Alex was at the ranch this summer as an advisor on trek with two of his three sons. Their crew consisted of scouts from all over the world. For Alex, being able to experience Philmont with his kids and really see them begin to understand and love its magic was a recursive and full-circle feeling hard to put into words. Alex is currently the Consular Section Chief at the U.S. Embassy in Harare, Zimbabwe. He has been a career Foreign Service officer since 2000. He has extensive experience in national security, immigration law, counterterrorism, refugee resettlement, humanitarian assistance, and more. His work is a calling and a passion. The happiest people he knows are the ones working for a mission they believe in. He praises Philmont staff for showing up for each other, and no matter how seemingly opposite we may be, the common bond of Philmont puts us all on the same team. I'm here today with 
Oh, let's see if I can do your... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've heard it pronounced. Okay, so Alex, Ave, Ave Alamont? Close. Okay. It's Ave Lalamont, like Ave Lava Lamp or Ave Lollipop. And there's a lot of people who call me Lollipop. Uh, back in the day when they pronounced it, we used to call it the Volvidal instead of the Vallevidal. So I was Volvidalamont. Um, so yeah, but a lot of people call me Ave too, because it's just easier to, yeah. it's a very long story. Uh, it goes back to France, like in the 1600s and through a whole lot of moves around the world, uh, it ended up being Ave Lalamont. My dad and my mom were born, my dad was born in Indonesia. My mom was born in Holland and they got married in Holland and then moved to the U.S. Uh, before I was born. And then I show up on the scene shortly thereafter. And, uh, you know, you, you, you knew when I was like a kid, or was a, you know, like everyone around you is like got kind of shorter, more easily pronounceable. I won't say regular, but more common names. And you go to the doctor's office and you're like, they're like, Mr. Smith, Miss Jones. And then they come out like they just sat on a railroad spike. They're like, it's like, that's me right here. I'll be all on. I'm here. Like, I don't even, you don't even say, you know, so I joke whenever I do like a job interview, the first thing I get is how do you pronounce your name? I'm like, at least I get one question right, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, letting us all know because there are, you've been nominated to be on the show by several people and everyone's like, it's that Alex Ave guy and I don't know how to say his name. So now everyone will know how to say his name, your name. Awesome. Alex, thanks for being on the show today. You just got off the trail as an advisor on a trek. Um, so, you know, I'm excited to chat with you about how that went. But let's see, do you want to take it way back and kick it off with your sort of your Philmont origin story? You went yeah. on three treks. Were they regular treks or were they special they're, treks? They were regular treks. I mean, they were okay. all very special for me, but they were just sure. regular 10-day treks. Yeah. So I was a camper in 87, 88, and 89. And it's, it's a story that I think you've heard in many different ways. I think from some of your guests, uh, you know, I, I was actually about to quit scouts. I was 14 and 87. And my mom was like, well, dude, you put a being crafty like moms are, she's like, I already put a deposit on a film line. So you should at least do that. And you know, what's the Ranger song? I want to go back to film on like I got to base. I'm like, eh, it's kind of dusty and dingy here, you know? And then flash forward to 12 days later, I'm maybe 14 days later, we're back in Houston getting out of the car. And it was, I want to go back to film on. It was like, that was my purpose in life. You know, like I had a goal, I had a mission. I was lucky to go back two more times as a camper. And then, yeah, I wouldn't say I was super motivated to do much else, but then I was like, hey, maybe I could be on staff. And then I heard that someone told me like pretty much everyone on staff is an Eagle Scout. I, I don't know if that's true. It seems to be the case. So I was like, well, I know what I need to do. So I was motivated. I got Eagle, which for many reasons was a tremendous accomplishment. Obviously still one of the things I'm most proud of in my career or in my life, I guess, not just career as a human, I guess. And then I went back on staff in 92 and it was, it was, I think it was just teenage anxiety kind of deal. I wasn't sure what I wanted from life and it didn't seem great. So I took 93 off and I was like, well, that was a mistake. And my home troop actually went and did a backpacking trip in the Pecos wilderness. And I have this photo of me like on top of one of the peaks there and looking out to the North and you could see like black, you could see like that whole Ridge tooth Ridge, you know, the black death Ridge or whatever. And I'm going, damn, I should be there. And that was it. I, it was off to the races. I did 94 as a ranger. And, sorry, did Riado as a ranger in 94, came back as a, we called them TRs. They're now called ranger trainers. And then two years as Riado Trek coordinator. And then my last year as a head rocket CEDO. So that's kind of my, in a nutshell, my Philmont career until I guess yeah. my career now <laughs> includes being an advisor. Yeah. Yeah. You, you returned. 
made it back home. Do you recall any specifics from your your three treks as a participant back in the 80s? Yeah, you know, we had the same crew of, of kids and advisors coming back each time. So by the third time, we were pretty pretty good and kind of knew our stuff and did more hiking and less program and knew what programs we wanted to do. The climbing for me was always, because like there were no climbing gyms in South Texas, Southeast Texas, you know, in the eighties until like late nineties. So gents to be in mountains and climb rocks was super cool. So miners and CEDOs where we climbed and just being out there in the mountains and doing the film on thing, you know, the back, just carrying your being, not a hundred percent self-sufficient, but reason, you know, self-sufficient for periods of time. And, and, and I was like the worst hiker my first time out. <laughs> and so they put me in front and it was good. Cause I could feel people pushing me. And then like they, one of my jobs is to carry the extra food bag. And I was not clued into the fact that there were swap boxes that you could leave things in. So for like six days, this extra food guy just kept, you know, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It looked like a, a hobo bag or something. And I had an external frame pack. So I like tied it onto one of the frames and, it gave me a rhythm, like the swinging back and forth. And the guy hiking behind me was, I was like, I hate that bag. And then one day my advisor picked up my pack. He's like, Jesus, Alex, what do you got in here? I'm like, oh, I got the extra food. He's like, you could get rid of that. But then they're all like, hmm, maybe he's not so weak after all. You know? <laughs> so yeah. uh, I think that's probably like the, the thing I remember most was just like when I was behind people, I was always struggling to keep up. When I was in front, suddenly I was, I felt them pushing me. And suddenly, you know, like you like we were teaching our kids today, like you could do a lot more than you think and like pushing through those boundaries, which, which I think Philmont is so good at and the climbing, I think, and just the, the Philmont thing, whatever that is that brings, you know, like the thing, the, the vibe, the aura, everything, you know? And, and yeah. Yeah. Like you said, you, you were in the ranger department for five of your six years on staff and ended yeah. up in the backcountry in 1998 as the ACD head rock at CETO. I was not a ranger. I worked in the backcountry six of my seven summers. I was a photographer for one year at base camp. Mm. But what is it about the ranger department that you were drawn to or kind of what is that culture like in the 90s, at least? <laughs> well, you know, and I'm going to say based on my experience, I don't think it's changed much, actually. And and I'm sure we'll have time to talk about that later. But it was very gratifying to see that. But like part of it is the, the overall Philmont culture of like, let's just do this. And Hey, I'm going to Taos today. You want to come? Oh, I didn't have anything to do. Let's go. And that kind of that spirit of adventure and and real positive, like just positivity and, and camaraderie that I think I felt with the whole staff. I mean, there were, there's certainly rivalries on the staff, but I know me and, and a lot of people that I'm close to, like, I mean, there are people that career backcountry people and cons people that all kind of came down to hang out when we were getting off the trail and, and stuff. And, uh, you know, like, like that just general attitude was good. And I think I kind of look at it as like, who are you? Like, what's your personality? What, what is it you like to do? And some people are just more into like hanging out in one place and doing one thing and teaching that, you know, the forge or climbing or, or whatever program, pick a program, you know, or conservationists, let's say, who are just happy to build trail and talk about conservation and, and, and do that. Um, and then some people are more peripatetic, more like a bit more wanderlusty. And that's, that's what appealed to me was, is like being the, you're like the, it's almost like the, the staff that are in one place are kind of the organs and the Rangers of the blood or something like that, you know, and you're just kind of cool. moving around the whole place and you get to see, you know, how starkly different Baldy is from, from Crater Lake. You know what I mean? Like there's two completely different, even though they're just a few miles apart, you know, and, and, get to see all that. I love the teaching aspect of it and the the mentoring and the coaching. Um, I'm a people person. I'm a very extroverted guy. So being with all those people all the time was inspiring to me. 
Rangers at the time did all the search and rescue stuff. So did a bunch of really cool SARS with people. And when I came back to the ranch this time, it's a bit different now. They don't, you know, I had to go do that WUFA replacement class because unfortunately, uh, Chris Sawyer, who's going to be our fourth advisor, he, he got COVID and couldn't make it. So I, I, I had to do that. And I ended up telling the guy at the infirmary a lot about all the SARS I was doing. And he was like, yeah, okay, you're good. You know? Um, so that, that kind of adventure and, and having those responsibilities. I mean, I was, I did a SAR on the tooth and I believe it was 96 where me and Daryl trustee lowered, uh, Rachel, her, she was going to be a ranger and she's going to be a ranger typist, but she slid down the side of the tooth and like broke both of her ankles, like fell 50 feet, ripped her fingernail, like fingerprints off and hit a tree. And so I brought together, they asked me to do the high angle search and rescue and, you know, 24 years old and I'm lowering this person, like literally doing this complicated high angle SAR and like having that kind of responsibility and authority at that age was, was just perfect, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, and, and just that can do spirit that you find all over the place there is just like really inspired me in a lot of ways. Let's talk a little bit about Rayado since you were involved as a Rayado Ranger in 94 and then uh, the Rayado Trek coordinator in 96 and 97. The Rayado program is very popular and is kind of known as like a a time to push yourself, whether the participants know they're getting into that or not, there's going to be mental and physical challenges to grow you. Just what are some takeaways from your years working intimately with that program? Um, I mean, I think it's the best thing ever. Like, I wish I, you know, when I was a kid, I lacked a lot of self-confidence. And I think that's very common for teenagers, you know, and coming to the ranch really helped me build that like in a real genuine way and not, you know, performatively. And, and Rayado like is the epitome of that. Like, you know, it just, you get to see, I mean, I, I was talking to some of the, we ran into Rayado women crew when we were out there and we were talking to the Rangers and it was like the best thing. So when we first got there, I go into the, into the Hardesty building now, it's where the adult bathrooms are. And I go in there and there's all these people they're planning. I was like, those are Rayado Rangers planning Rayado second session Rayado itineraries. And I, so I was like, had to run back to Joe McCreary. I was like, Hey, you guys doing, are you planning Rayado itineraries? And one person's like, no. And then these two women are like, yeah. And I was like, really cool. I used to be RTC way to go. And I ran off and they're like, who was that? And that we ran into the two of the, the, the women Rangers, uh, you know, when we were on the way to fish and they're like, Oh, that was you. That was so cool. I was like, Oh, that was cool too. I just, you know, like I was explaining to some of the campers and our campers, you know, like, like we hiked out to the stockade. Then this full, this is the both times it basically followed a similar kind of itinerary, but did this full loop of the South country. I ended up all the way up on Castilla crashed in Elk Meadows, which is in between Castilla and Ash Mountain up there in the, the Valle. Now they call it, we call it the Vol. Hikes from there to IW in one day, spent 90 minutes in the lightning position and had six strikes within 150 yards. And then like a couple hours later, we're resting and had a, a yearling bear stick its head right next to us, made it all the way to IW. I later, I, I shouldn't, well, we may want to edit this out, but I'll just say I have a picture of myself sitting on the T-Rex print, which you can't do anymore, sitting on it. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, I guess the statute of limitations is, is, you know, has expired. But um, and uh, and then, you know, finished up hiking back in over the tooth and into the stockade. It did like a full loop of all the property that was available at the time. It was probably about 200 some odd miles in three weeks, you know, and that like and to think of all the other challenges that Rado throws at you as a participant, but also as a, as a ranger for it. You know, you got to be responsible for all these people doing some really boundary pushing things in it you know, it, it's, it's, you kind of learn. I was telling one of my, my campers this time around, who's struggling on early on in the trail, I said, you got to love where you are, man. This might suck, but you still got to love it because you're here and you're never coming back again, you know? And like, 
when we get to Cyphers, that day was pretty tough. I said, what if I told you we got to Cyphers, you could go another 10 miles? He's like, no way. I was like, well, I mean, you made up your mind. I'm not saying it would be a 10 pleasant miles, but you could certainly do it. And they started learning that over the course of the trek. And I just think, you know, everything, it, it just gives these kids and frankly, young adults who are doing the program, just some like rocket fuel for life if you handle that right. And it's just so beautiful to see that and to be part of it. And yeah. I could go on. We could just do an hour and a half, three hours on just on that, you know. Right. Um, you could do like a whole podcast on just Rayado. <laughs> were there any specific moments during your time on staff where you were really surprised by what you were called upon to do in your job role? I mean, actually, the answer is probably no, because at that place, you just roll with it. You know, you just, oh, you need me to, you know, you know, at 7 p.m., 8 p.m., and you need me to go up in a rainstorm and re- try to retrieve a guy who got hit by lightning on the top of Phillips? Okay, let me finish these M&Ms and we'll go. And that's, you know, like when we, we went to the Woofa thing, the guy at the infirmary was like, yeah, so lightning strikes. I was like, oh, sorry. Um, so I once did a SAR for a guy hit by lightning on Phillips. He's like, what? <laughs> and actually, Jim Katchmar, one of my fellow advisors, was on that SAR and it was hard. I mean, we actually went the wrong side and we ended up, they needed to send a second team up just as much to help us out as was to get help the kid out. And, you know, we, I'll never forget. We basically went like 36 hours without sleep. And, um, when we got back to base, it's funny. I had been, uh, madly in love or in a crush, had a crush on this, this one ranger and, and she left and I turns out she was never interested in me in the first place or whatever. And so I had all this angst that SAR took care of all of that. Like this whole near death experience took care of all of it. And so I went to CJ Gaddis, who was my ACR at the time. Um, I went to his, his dorm in H and I think I slept for like 16 hours in a row, woke up the next morning and a buddy and I, and I went over to Hex, which I don't think was open anymore, but had breakfast. They put this glass of orange juice in front of me and it was like the best glass of orange juice I've ever had in my life. And like, I was good, you know, you know, it's like, oh, you need me to, okay, fine. And every, because it doesn't surprise you what you can do because everyone around you is like, of course you can, duh, you know, and, and you take kind of that kind of almost laconic approach to to things. And it's like, yeah, well, let's get it done, you know? And so, you know, it turns out the more you push yourself, the more you can handle and the more you can handle, the more you can do. And when you start, if things don't succeed, you don't internalize it as a failure, but it's just something you learn from on the way. And I mean, those things are the most useful lessons I think I've ever come across in life. You think Philmont staffers and Philmont participants are able to carry that into the real world, world, that attitude, or do you think it's about being surrounded by people who all have that same mentality that makes it work? That's a great question. I mean, I think you can, and I think you can, the more you do that, the more you end up being drawn to people like that and also maybe creating an environment where that exists. And certainly in later years, I've certainly tried to, to create that. And I'm lucky I work in an organization that generally has a pretty good attitude about stuff like that. I feel like you take that attitude with you, it, it builds upon itself and it creates an environment. And if you, you know, if you can't get someone to, to buy into that, it's like, well, I don't know how much I want not like I don't want to hang out with you, but like, I just don't, I don't like that negativity in my life, you know, like let's get up and get after it. That's, I like people like that, you know? And that's why like when all these friends of mine, you know, came down after we got off the trail, all the same attitude. It was like, you just, it's like being back in it, you know? And it's, it was wonderful. Speaking of friends, I'm sure you're still friends with many of the staff staffers you met back in the nineties. Anyone specific that really mentored you or you really looked up to? I had some good training rangers slash ranger trainers. Chad Gillis was my first TR and then Patrick Stanforth. And then when I became a ranger trainer or training ranger myself, and then later as route trek coordinator, those three summers, CJ Gaddis was my ACR. And he was, I learned a lot from him. Also like 
like I'm not Catholic, but I used to go hang out with Don Hummel and Jim Oberly, who were two of the Catholic chaplains. And I love those. They'd just like go hang out with it, like, you know, learn. They were very cultured and educated people and and always had time for me. I'm just gonna sit there on the porch and talk with them. And and we apparently Don is coming through the ranch and we just missed him by a couple of weeks, which is really tragic because I'd love to see that guy again. And yeah, so so those guys really uh yeah, super capable people and again with that same attitude and CJ in particular has just like He's like the wolf from Pulp Fiction. Like we got all these problems, you know, it's an hour away on the other side of town. I'll be in there 15 minutes. We'll solve the problems. Like that, I really admire that. Like I don't particularly have a, I'm not as good at that as he is, I think. But uh, that kind of keeping your poise under intense pressure is something I've, I've taken from that and used many, many times in my life. To be calm under pressure is, I think, a learned skill. I think some of us have it maybe a little more innately than others, but it's definitely like a practiced and learned skill. Absolutely. I know in, par- in parenting, I do that a lot. <laughs> yep. um, so yeah. I, I like to commend my kids for helping me you know, build on that skill. <laughs> testing you, stress testing. No, absolutely. Listen, I, I have this saying nowadays, like when I, I think it is, yeah, you can have some of it and you can learn you have it, but you can, if you, I think it's with most things like music ability, athletic ability, leadership ability. If you want to get better at it or, or humble enough to understand that you need to get better at it, you can get better at it. And certainly being 24 years old and having not just Rachel's life on in my hands, but also Daryl Trusty, who was, one of, was a paramedic, was the other guy, kind of main guy on that team, you know, lowering them off the tooth with your hand on a rope. Like, you know, 24 years old, that's a good way to learn how to, it, whether or not you got some steel under pressure and, and what to do. And, and again, climbing for that reason, I think has been very good just because everyone's afraid of heights. That's why we're alive. You know, Alex Honnold will tell you he's afraid of heights, you know, but he, how you handle that fear, you know, and how you, you don't conquer it. You just accept it and work with it. And the same thing with stress, you know, and having spent some time in Afghanistan and been shot at a few times, I tell people my jobs now, I was like, they're all like, ah. I was like, well, is anybody shooting at us? No. Okay. We're going to be okay. Like that's kind of, and yeah, I mean, again, learning those lessons, a great place to learn them is a place like Philmont. That's where I learned them. And, and I use those things all the time. You've got a lot of stories. You've got a lot of experiences from your time on staff. Any specific traditions or, you know, legacies you got to be a part of or witness or just we can break here for like a story time if there's a story you want to share. I got stories for days, man. <laughs> and I have this joke, you know, like the term in medias res, which means in the beginning of the action. Like I never start a story in the beginning. I used to go back and, and so people are like, okay, dude, come on, get to the point. Um, <laughs> and I'm easily distracted. So then we go with this. Way. I mean, I'll say it's a tradition and I won't say too much of it about it. Um, but just how Rayado starts. I love it. I love it. And I will say like we, I hope they still do it, but the Rayado rock piles where at the end of Rayado, when all the crews come back together, they share a memory and they put up. Um, we were at the stockade, like, like five days ago, four, it blows my mind. And I went looking for the rock piles because that's some of them are right out of peak and some of them are on in the stockade. And maybe now there's other places I, I don't know, but, but you know, all those represent something and that's a really cool tradition. But the way Rayado starts just, and when you're, you know, I remember in 95 when I was a, a ranger trainer and I was watching the Rayado thing and, you know, all the staff is there and a lot of former rowdies are there and you're like, God damn, I want to be there. I want to, and, and I was talking to another ACR and, I was like, man, this sucks. I'm not part of it. He's like, yeah, all of us who've done it and aren't doing it now are hurting because we want to be there. And I got to do it two more years. So, so I was really fortunate about that. But yeah, like that to me is incredibly special. Was there ever a position on staff you wish you could have done or something you would have created that didn't exist? You know, my last year, I applied to be an ACR and I'm kind of, I'm kind of grateful I didn't do. I'm glad I got to get out in the backcountry. And certainly when I was 
this last trip when I was out there and I said I was in a ranger farm, I'm like, oh, it's in my last year's head rocket Cedo. They're like, oh, wow, that's cool. And I'm like, well, so I was being a ranger for five years, you know, but when you're in the backcountry, talking to backcountry people, it carries a little different level of credibility. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I would like to have been like a CD at a campfire camp. I mean, I learned how to play guitar basically at Philmont from Philmont people. I was fortunate enough to be invited by Larry to be on the first Tabasco Donkeys album. And unfortunately, a little, I don't think Larry mentioned it when he was on, but so if you look at the cover, there's a version of me with hair, but I had this big red, like sunburst guitar and raccoon eyes. Cause I was living in Crested Butte at the time and was skiing all the time. Um, there's a couple songs that didn't make it on that album for whatever reason. I think they got lost, but one was there's two or three of them. One was love at the five and dime, which Larry and Trish and I did. And then another one was just was Voss and Bob Brown playing harmonica and bass. And I don't know how much Voss has been talked about on your podcast, but the dude is an all world harmonica player and just a genuine character. And they just suddenly started playing and they played the song called this land is nobody's land. I think it's by John Lee hooker. And it was a harmonica and a bass. And we all just stopped what we were doing and listened. And it was just transcendent. And, you know, one of those spontaneous things that, that sometimes life gifts you, you know, and, Unfortunately, it got it got lost on the cutting room floor. Um, but uh, it was really cool to be a part of that. And you know, I wasn't a confident singer. I'm still a crappy singer, but um, you know, we did it. And being a part of that was before this. Was before anyone could record with SoundCloud, where it was like a real recording, like real stuff, you know. And and I was really fun to be a part of that. The Tabasco Donkeys album is kind of this like you know elusive thing because there's like several different album covers for the original. The, that first album they did, and then it's just all the background story to how that happened. Because now music in the backcountry is so professional. I mean these these kids. It's so yeah. I was gonna say one thing I noticed when I was back that there's just a lot fewer staff coming back the last couple of years because of yeah, the, and I think that's harmed the campfire staff a lot. You know, and yeah. and it takes a while to build that up. I know Greg Harper um, or GS as he goes by was in Bobian last year, and he he was on the second album. Um, and I'm not bitter that Larry didn't invite me back for the second album at all. Not at all. Yeah. Larry. <laughs> um, Larry, if you're listening. <laughs> there are other reasons I'm angry with Larry. No, I love Larry. Um, Larry was possibly going to be an advisor with me and my crew too. And instead he put us on a Rayado and that worked out great for him. Um, but, uh, but Greg, who's a professional musician and an old friend and, uh, he was back and people were still talking about the Bobby and campfire this year. And oh, good. Like you work with G.S. Harper, I'm like Greg. You know, Greg's my dude. You know, and, yeah. and I'm like, yeah, he 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 was th that guy back in the day. I mean, he was. I'm sure he's grown as a musician, but he was pretty damn grown up as a musician in the '90s. And and yeah, so that's one thing I hope is that like as more and more staff are, and I noticed like the songs that I think were consistently sung like from their release in the '70s, like Me and My Uncle, yeah, or Front of the Devil. Like yeah. I was teaching people in the backcountry how to play Front of the Devil. And I think I attribute that to kind of the break in staff they had the two of the last, you know, four summers or whatever that, you know, and so it's good because they're, they're playing new songs, but then it'd be nice to keep some of those traditions, you know, back alive. And, and, sure. but yeah, it was kind of, you know, it's nobody's fault, but it's unfortunate that for many reasons that those things happen. Um, I actually just interviewed G.S. Harper the other day, so his oh, interview you? will be coming out. He was so fun to chat with. Um, oh, such a good dude. Yeah. And we were talking about how music is just, um, transcendent and healing and um we were laughing we were like you don't need to do drugs or drink you just like you just need to be in a group of people with music and mm -hmm. it's you're kind of in this mm -hmm. higher state of enlightenment but um my dad worked out on staff back in the day and that's why me and my sisters all went to Philmont mm -hmm. and 
I worked at Bobian. And so um, the music has always been like a huge part for me personally, for my journey. Yeah. And so it's really fun to, you know, like, cause we were just out at the ranch and I was with my sisters and brother-in-law, we were singing and uh, doing a little performance for the PSA. And so it feels really cool to be a part of that. The music is a huge yeah. tradition, I think for a lot of people at the ranch. So. Oh, I totally agree. And I, 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 was back there and like passed through Clark's day one on the trail. Right. And so Jim Catchmore and I, you know, 12 summers of staff between us were like, at first we we're like, how do we broach the fact that we used to be on, cause we don't be that guy. We don't be that yeah. like back in my day was better, you know, Yeah. <laughs> but we don't want to hide it. We want to talk to the current film on staff, you know? And so, I mean, towards the end it was like, Hey, how you doing staff in the nineties? What's up? You know, like we kind of just like, but people were really cool and we tried r really hard just to, I just want to hear as much, learn as much from them as, and, and share the experience and share kind of the presence on staff. But we were, we got to Clark's and I think within 15 minutes I was teaching these guys friend of the devil and then we played Everlong together. And so, you know, like it was just, just back in that, you know, and then a couple other camps I went to, like one place where one of the PCs was learning guitars, like, look, if you let me borrow your guitar, I'll teach you chords. And so I spent the whole day just playing guitar and then again at the next camp and, and they were all like super cool. And, and yeah, it was just so fun to be back in that, that zone, you know, and, and yeah. just interestingly enough in my, in my, um, the last thing I did, I was acting ambassador in Zimbabwe to the, of the United States in Zimbabwe, right before I got on a plane to come to Philmont. And the last thing I gave a speech at our 4th of July reception and then jammed with a bunch of professional Zimbabwean musicians. And we played one African song and give me one reason by Tracy Chapman. And you, you can trace that all back as so many things in life. You can trace it right back to film on um, and just being part of that music and making music with different cultures. And it was just absolutely like, I mean, those are like real musicians, not a guy who tries real hard like me, but it was just amazing, you know, but yeah. it's the same kind of vibe, you know, you, yeah. and I've been able to do that all over the world and it's, it's super cool. I love that. I love that full circle feeling and i uh, we got we were able to get out to the backcountry where we were at metcalf station and like you said just being with the current staff is so important i think for us past alumni just like you know seeing the camp and how they are making it their own and how things have changed but have stayed the same that yeah. was so important for me yeah. and um agree i loved that so you just got off the trail as an advisor um share your trek adventure with us what were your takeaways how was it Oh my God. Um, so <laughs> it's gonna, a loaded uh, question. <laughs> so I'm going to tell a story that sounds like it has nothing to do with me, but it's going to explain something. So when you were interviewing Spivey, right? So Spivey, like this is one thing I love about Philmont. Like Spivey, Spivey is a dude who uses the word the cowboy as a verb and non-ironically. Like I'm like, I'm Spivey, I cowboy up. And I'm like, you are such a badass, Spivey, you know? And I remember and any of these hard, rough wranglers and, and those times sometimes those guys are the kind of tough to crack, you know, but we all knew each other. Like I said, I made a point of trying to get along with everybody. And, um, I remember once Spivey, we were at somewhere and Spivey walks in and he goes, man, these people out there had the brains of South Texans, man, couldn't stand it. And he looks at me and goes, Alex, where are you from? I was like, Spivey, dude, I'm from Houston. <laughs> and we had a good chuckle about it. But, but I remember when you had Spivey on and he's big, you know, and all of a sudden he starts blubbering at one point and I'm like, Spivey can do it. So can I. And so that's kind of where I am, man. Like, like it was a dream come true, <laughs> you know, taking my kids there and especially like, like, like I kind of sometimes because I move all around the world and I'm not here, not in the U S very much. I kind of have to not bury it, but put it in the back of my mind. Cause I'm just not nearby, you know? And, uh, 
like like my oldest son and, and my kids, of course, I'm sure you're like this too, but they, they've heard about Philmont since forever, you know? And my wife was like, don't oversell it. I'm like, I'm not overselling anything. And I told them like, I don't expect you to love it like I did. I would love it if you did. I just want you to understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> and my oldest son, he at some point he goes, he goes, dad, now I get it. And I was like, score, <laughs> you know? Yeah, was, yeah. He's like, now I get why you love this place so much. <laughs> and I was like, you know, and then my middle son, who was also with me, is like, can we come back next year? I was like, how do you get it? <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, know? you got like, it. That may not yeah. be on the cards, but I love the way you're, where your head's at, you know? And, yeah. um, and we were at CETO at Webster Parks doing the conservation up there. And I was talking to these conservationists, also both named Alex, interestingly enough. A lot of Alex's on the ranch. And, you know, and and we were talking and they were wonderful. And, uh, and my son walks up. He goes, Dad, I think I really want to come back on staff. And I was like, yeah. And he goes... I think I want to do cons. I was like, oh, well, okay. <laughs> and I kind of joked about it. But no, if he came back on cons, if that's what makes him happy, I would be thrilled, you know? Yeah, but, uh, yeah. I mean, just being there and, and you know, when I walked up to the – so so 98 was in Head Rock at Cedo. Julie Vahill, who was then Julie Smith, was the CD, and she still works at the, the Backcountry Warehouse. And I think she was dating a dude who was really trying to impress her, and he built this huge table – and put it in the cabinet CETO and Cynthia Newcomb is now Cynthia Trumper like painted this big thing on the table. I don't know if you've seen it. It's this big, wonderful scene and painted all our names around the edge. And so Julie's there and I'm right next to her at the top is the head rock. And, uh, when I went in there, I was like, Hey guys, you know, like, uh, is that table still in there? And they're like, yeah, it's like, my name's on it. They're like, what? And then they're like, you want to go look at it? I was like, yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. And they were like, one of them said, hey, we got this advisor here who said he was, and I was like, advisor, what? Oh, that's me. <laughs> and it was kind of this weird thing. But the table's still there. My name's still on the table. I, and like, I, at base, I went into the advisor's lounge for the first time. And I was like, am I supposed to be in here? Like, yeah, dude, you're yeah. an advisor now. Yeah. So it was, it, was, it was weird. I mean, being a camper, then being on staff, and being three very different aspects of the experience. But the mountains are still the same by and large. You know, there's the burns and the whatever, but the, the hills, they're, they're the same. You know, the place is still the same. Things have changed and things need to change as they always do. The, the program has changed. You know, the thing, I think it's generally evolved for the better. Um, but at some point, like I remember, so Jim and I, you know, Jim Katchmar is my fellow advisor. At one point we were going our separate, we were two different places in base on the way when we finished and, we crossed each other like, Hey, I'll see you at the 10 or whatever, you know? And he, and I thought to myself, that just seemed like it happened 35 years ago or whatever years ago. And, but you know, it was today, you know, it was my buddy, Jimmy. And we were, and he said later, he's like, you know, it was so weird when we passed each other. It just seemed like we were still wearing our green uniforms. And I was like, yeah, I know. So it was this weird kind of movement in time. And, but it was wonderful. I'm so happy for you all. And and so it was you and and two of your sons. Do you have other kiddos? I got a, an 11-year-old who was exceedingly jealous that he couldn't come. He's with his yeah. mom and so my wife is from Wales, so they're in Wales right now. And uh but I am confident that he will make it out there as well. Even if if cuz our our in order to keep our kids in scouting, we've had to create two separate scout troops. And in fact, our our crew consisted of me and then we were in Doha for a while. So they have a scout troop there. And so we had a, an advisor and his son from Doha 
And then we created a scout troop in Kathmandu and we had a kid from Kathmandu and then a troop in Harare in Zimbabwe. And we had four or five kids from there. And then Jim Katchmar, my longtime Philmont friend, he and I have 140 Facebook friends in common, which I think is a record for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and his nephew came. So we were like from all over wow, and I cool. never really thought this was going to work out and it did. So, you know, wherever we are, I think if nothing else, I'll send my youngest on Rayado and be stoked. I, hopefully my other two might do it too. I don't know. We'll figure it out, but I, yeah. he wants to go. I, I'd love it. I want him to go. So apparently yeah. these kinds of things work out like that. Yeah. It'll work out. Yeah. I'm so happy for you. I, I don't know. Since we're on the topic of just how it's such an incredible place, like, what do you think it is about it? Like, if you um, had to describe it. You know, the sense. classic thing, right, that we all, I always heard and, and they were saying, it's, it's it's the place is beautiful, but it's the people are what bring you back. I think you can't have one without the other. You know, you can't. The things you do there, the challenges you face there, it, it's kind of recursive. You know, it, it, it the people are amazing and they are certainly, I think, have the same spirit that we had in my day. And I'm really happy to hear that or have experienced it, but the place doesn't, you know, like, like, like black death, right. Black death is the hike from black mountain into base over all the peaks. Like you can't do black death anywhere outside of Philmont. Now there are other places where you can hike, but the, the way it all comes together and yeah, you could put Philmont in another equally rugged, rugged place and all that. Um, I guess, but you know, it's, it's an observer effect, right? The observer effect is like you, you change one thing, you change other things just by your being observing, observing it, you know, and, and you, you put people in Houston, Texas, and I love Houston, Texas, don't get me wrong, but you're not going to have the same kind of ambiance, camaraderie, whatever you want to call it, as you do in those stretch of mountains. And yeah, so yeah, chicken or egg, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm still trying to figure it out. Let's talk a little bit about what it is that you do today since you mentioned, you know, living all over the place. Career foreign service officer. You've, you work at the embassies. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, so. What do you do? Tell, tell yeah, us what, what do you I do. do. So if you <laughs> put it in one word, it's, I'm, I'm a diplomat. So I'm a diplomat. That's my okay. my job. Um, diplomacy. And that is a very simple word that is very complicated. But so the state, the foreign service is the main diplomatic core of the United States. There are, there are other agencies that send people overseas, but, and practice diplomacy, but the foreign service is, is the kind of the heart of it. And so I work for the United States state department or department of state, not the state department of transportation or the forest service or whatever, but the foreign service. And yeah, so I joined in 2000. It's a very competitive, like at the time, historically for every, every year, about 10,000 people start the process and about 250 make it through. So it's very, very selective. And you serve in embassies overseas or consulates you work in. And a consulate is just an, a U.S. official U.S. presence in a non-capital city. So if we have an embassy in New Delhi, which is the capital of India, we have a consulate in Chennai, for example, which is in southern India. And then you also work domestically, mostly in Washington, D.C. or in New York at the U.N., at the U.S. mission to the U.N. And you, it's, I had a former ambassador who called it doing the work of the American people. So we advance the American interest overseas in a variety of different ways. Um, and it's, yeah, I've been doing it since 2000, 22 years and absolutely love it. And it's just been a wonderful choice of career. I don't think I chose, I don't think I chose it. I think it was the other way around, but yeah, it's been a calling and a passion, just like being on Philmont staff and, and a mission that I believe in. And it's been great. Yeah. 
Do you remember like when you were called to that specifically? I do. And you may be surprised to know that Philmont plays a role in it. Um, no, really? <laughs> no way. So, so as I mentioned, my parents immigrated from the Netherlands and I grew up in a, in a, in a bilingual household. Um, so I speak Dutch and I speak English and I have learned other languages since. And when I was 11, my dad, my dad was a professor and took a sabbatical in Paris. And so I spent some time as an 11 year old in Paris, which is a, I don't know if you've ever been, but it's just a beautiful city and really it was kind of eye opening to be there. And then I came back and I was like, cool. And then I think one spring break, I toured Washington, D.C. And Washington, D.C. has a similar kind of feel like the monuments are all lit up, just like the monuments of Paris at night. And it's kind of like, hey, that'd be kind of cool. But, you know, you got to probably be, you know, go to Harvard or whatever to get in there or Georgetown School of Foreign Service or whatever and go in there. I didn't think about too much. And then one day, it was after the summer of 97, and me and a couple of dudes are going to move up to Denver. And I've been teaching a little bit in Houston, where I'm from like preschool and second grade, which was fun. Wasn't going to be something I did for the rest of my life. And I was back in the ranch and it was kind of like, I got a little more serious in my life. I don't want to go back, keep going back to Texas. Uh, Texas is great, but it's, I want to see more of the world. And so I had this interview for a job, like with an ad firm and just something in, real, in me was like, I'm, I'm not feeling this, man. This isn't really what I'm into. And I was just sitting there at this like Kinko's copy center in Denver and it just like came to me like a flashlight. I was like, dude, what about the foreign service? I mean, try that, man. It's like, sure. What do I do? I, like, I don't know. So I, I went back home to Houston for a little while. And meanwhile, I'd also gotten a job teaching at a school outside of Santa Fe called Brush Ranch, where there were a lot of Philmont people there too. It doesn't exist anymore as a school. But um, so I kind of knew I had that. But I went back to Houston to like, change stuff. And I logged in our dial-up internet connection. And I got more information. I registered for the written exam. And then... Um, just the more I thought about it, the more it's like, this is what I want to do is going to have that purpose again. And so I really prepared as well as I could for it. And I was lucky enough to pass on the first try. And uh, I joined March of 2000 and, and yeah, I mean, and then it went. And so, yeah, I was lucky to have that realization and lucky to be able to, to get into it when I did, you know? Yeah. Very fun. I love uh, kind of like those stories, those moments, like those specific memories, like where you're sitting at Kinko's when things come to you. I love those parts of this journey here on earth as humans. And you've lived all over. Is there, are there places that, you know, what are some of your favorite places that you've lived or visited? So every assignment I've had has been good or better. I haven't had a bad assignment. Um, so let's see, I sar- served in Barbados, which I met my wife there. So it was wonderful. Then I went to Greece then I spent four years in Washington and then I went to Qatar in the Middle East. And then I spent two years in Afghanistan working in a field location there. And then Hong Kong for three years. Then where did I go from Hong Kong? Kathmandu for two. And then back to Afghanistan where I worked on the peace process. And then here, Harare. So they've all been good in their own way. I think in terms of places to live, I love Hong Kong. Hong Kong is an amazing place. And yeah. Cool. Oh yeah. It's like if you put Manhattan in Hawaii, it's like this tropical island. You guys but we didn't even own a car there. You can get around super easy with public transportation and, and taxis. And it's always got something going on. It's a fascinating culture and history. And yeah, I just loved it. Yeah. Um I mean they've all been great though, in, in different ways. But if if you'd ask me like one place that really in terms of a place to live that stood out, it was Hong Kong. For me and maybe some others, when you talk to someone who their career involves you know, living overseas and in different, you know, different cultures, different languages. Um, it's kind of this like 
what? Like, whoa, tell, wh- how, like, what does that look like? Tell me about it. What's the day to day? Like, it's sort of this like out of body experience for those of us on the outside, not experiencing it. Is right. it, is it, is it like that at all? Or is it, you know, yeah. kind of a job and you still I have mean, to go to the group? Yes. Yeah. You still have to grind, but in, in this job, there is almost never the same thing twice. Like you might do, and I've been privileged enough to do a bunch of different jobs. Just like I said, in Afghanistan, the second time I was there, worked, I was like running the office that supported the peace process. Now the peace process obviously didn't work out so well and it was a huge tragedy, but working on that was utterly fascinating and, and a privilege to be a part of. Um, in Kathmandu, my job title was regional refugee coordinator for South Asia. And I was responsible for providing assistance to refugees in three countries in South Asia, and then also overseeing a resettlement program for people coming to the United States. In Hong Kong, I was in charge of the visa section where we interviewed about, we processed about in one year, about 20,000 visa applications, each of them vetted through a strict level of national security concerns and other concerns and all that. And, you know, I oversaw a really brilliant team in Harare. My job is to run, so visa section is part of an overall consular section that also provides services to Americans like passport renewals, reports of birth, but also visits people in jail and stuff like that. And so I run that overall section. And then I'm also often asked to, to work in the embassy front office. And so all of those is different and there's never a standard day. And it's wonderful if you like that kind of thing. If you like order and regularity, then you're going to suffer because it's just, there is none. If you like something new coming at you and juggling problems on the fly and, and all that, then it's, it's great. So, you know, it's, uh, I always say like the upside is that um, you're always learning new things on the job. You're always going to interesting places. You're always meeting new people, making new friends. And the downside is that once you get good at your job, once you get used to where you live and once you make all the friends, it's time to pick up and move. And certainly with my kids who didn't ask for that, I, sometimes I feel bad. And, and you know, cause on the one hand, I, I, this is, I always tell people the story. Like if you ask my kids, would you rather ride an elephant, a camel or a horse? They would give you an educated opinion because they've done it. And it wasn't like at the zoo, like they rode an elephant across the Mekong River in Laos. You know, they rode a Bactrian camel in the Gobi Desert and a horse in Mongolia. You know what I mean? Wow. Like, you know, yeah. but then like my oldest son is like, hey, dad, when we go to the U.S., can we go to the Olive Garden? <laughs> because they've never been to the Olive Garden. And they, they, they've grown up overseas. And this is the most of America they've seen in this trip because we were doing college tours and stuff. And, it, you know, they've seen... We normally we have a place in North Carolina, so we go there a lot. We did a long weekend in New York. Otherwise, it's Virginia, North Carolina. But this time we've been up in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Texas, Philmont. Now we're in Minnesota. So they've seen more of the country, and they just are desperate to. They talk American and, and sound American, but they don't know much about this place, you know. And so it's that's a trade off. Um, but I think it also, you know, and like with this group here, you know, we had people that never knew each other coming in to make a group, and they they bonded really well in part because when you go to these international schools and you're always moving around you accept the new person because you are the new person so much. And so, you know, it's trade-offs and I, I, you know, it sucks when you have to pack up and move um, certainly for them. But I think in the long term, it gives them a really good view of the world. Um, but yeah, it's, it's different every time. And, you know, there are times when it's no different from being at the end of a film on summer when you're saying goodbye to all your friends or whatever. And you're like, you know, same thing, like, by Greece, you know, don't know if I'll ever be back, you know, by Hong Kong. And, and, and it's very sad, you know? Yeah. I, I haven't been overseas much. I've been to Spain and is that it? <laughs> I've never been to Spain. So. Oh, okay. Well, it's beautiful. I'm sure you'll get there. Uh, 
But I, yeah, I think that's very fascinating. It makes me want to kind of, you know, Google or I, I, try, I try to not say Google. Like I always like when I'm with my kids, I'm like, oh, let's go research that because they're like, yeah. what is Google, mom? So um, it makes me like having this conversation with you makes me want to go research more about the Foreign Service and what you all are doing over there for yeah. the, the American people and and for the people of the countries you're living in, too. So. What what did your friend say at the beginning? He called it what? Doing the work of the American people? That was, yeah, the work of the American okay. people. It's, my job is basically in some way or another to advance American interest. Yeah. yeah. And we call okay. it doing the work of the American people or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Since you've been out there recently at Philmont, is there anything specifically like you're excited for for the future of Philmont? Are you involved in the Philmont Staff Association? I mean, I'm a member of the PSA, a life member, but I'm not like otherwise involved. It's kind of hard to do when you live so far when you're, overseas. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think number one, I'm excited that from what I saw, the staff there are into it for the same reasons that we were. In my experience, you know, I've met so many people in life around the world and people who are working for a mission tend to be the happiest. Now we all need, I'm not saying money isn't important because money is important. You know, if you don't have food and clothing, it's, you're not going to be happy. But once you get past that certain level, the extra dollar is less important, I think, than that extra bit of belief in what you do. And and I had, was privileged enough to have a lot of conversations with the staff. And, and you know, we used to have the saying, you can't live nine months for three, um, which in hindsight, I kind of am glad I didn't pay too close attention to because I feel like for a while I was doing that and it was the right thing. Like I got accepted into a master's program and I had to do some prerequisite work, which meant I couldn't come back in the summer of 96. Then I got a call from the chief ranger saying, hey, I want you to be the RTC. And I said, you got it, boss. And then I hung up and I called up the school. I was like, sorry, guys, can't do it. And to this day, I am profoundly grateful for that decision because I just, there was more I needed to learn. And one thing I'm grateful of is like in my career, and I realize not everyone can do this, but I like my last year is like, okay, I got everything that I'm supposed to out of this place. And, it, you know, one of those things was the importance of, of having a mission you know, having a something kind of overarching that you believe in a big purpose, you know, and it doesn't it can be anything, you know, as long as you believe in it. And I'd have these conversations with staff and, and, you know, you could hear, you know, cause I, I would have liked to have heard that when I was that age, you know, and, but what I was appreciating was like the staff that by and large were there, like really wanted to do stuff for the campers, really wanted to get the participation, right. Wanted to do the program as well as they could. And, and, and that kind of overarching ethos. And that, that made me very happy, I guess, excited to see that. You know, and there's also a lot of trail work still needs to be done because of the two lost years and the amount of the burn and the big windstorms they had and all that. You could see that, you know, so that kind of, again, that's nobody's fault, um, not directly at least. And so in a few years when you have more last, I guess last year, 35% of the staff came back. It's like all time low. And then this year it was in the 40% mark. And so, and you could tell, like I said, some of these songs that weren't getting sung and just some of the stuff that was all passed down from generation to generation that we knew about no one knows about it anymore. So we're trying to tell some of the staff some of these things. And I'm excited to think that next year, maybe 55% of that staff will be coming back or 60. And, and, you know, you're adding new things to this place and maybe there's ways to inject some of the old stuff that, that is still worth it. But I'm excited. The staff still were there for the right reasons. I think that, that to me, that was very, made me very deeply, deeply satisfied and pleased. Like I said earlier, it was really good to be at Metcalf and, and see the staff and, 
like all day long I'm a mom, right? And like I, yeah. I have very little time right now because my kids are young to think about like myself and and like who is Caitlin and what is, like what does she love and uh, and so like at at Metcalf it was just like me and the staff and it was sort of yeah. this like uh, exhale of like recalling this time that was so important and so formative yeah. and seeing it yeah. happen yeah. before my eyes yeah. to these you know, young staffers. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and you probably, you probably like had to bury that a little bit too. Cause like I said, you're so absorbed with what's going on today Yeah, and to get out there blinders. and pull, yeah. And pull that off and be like, like you said, exhale, like, Oh yeah, this place, you know? Yeah. Here. And then yeah. I just, it was, then I was like, okay, we're moving out there. I'll just move my kids. We'll get a job in Simmer. Like, you know, cause it sucks you back in. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, uh, so I know I'll be back soon, I'm sure. But yeah, it was really great to be, to, to see the staff in action. That was probably the best part of my whole trip. Before I roll into kind of like nominations and those types of things, any final story, memory, or something you, you miss about Philmont, whether it's mundane or specific? You know, you, you get in there and suddenly you smell the sage and the pine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you, it starts falling, the rain starts falling a little bit and, and it all mingles. And I can't say I miss that, but again, it's like, it's just a part of you. You don't realize you had until it comes back and it's so poetic. And so, you know, and, and like, I would climb a ladder for a view. I love climbing and I love being on the peak. And, and we were camped on Mount Phillips camp and we didn't, I didn't remember how far it was from the camp to the summit, which is like, 50 yards flat right so i was like well we'll do the sunrise tomorrow whatever so i just went out there and i was on the, the summit alone by myself and the sun was starting to set over wheeler a miss isn't the right word you know I, I i almost feel like you know i'm lucky i i i have a very fulfilled life and i love what i do and i've had some amazing experiences you know i mean I once was offered a high five by the Dalai Lama and I freaked out so hard. I left him hanging, you know, just randomly stuff that happens. But, um, and the fact that that story is true just blows my mind. And, um, I don't know, like I've had so many amazing experiences in life. So I can't say I'm regretful or miss that, you know, and, and all of those really, there's a direct line from that to film on. Like it, it's a circuitous route around the world, but it all starts that day. <laughs> that 14 year old kid showed up on the trail and who knew, you know, like, like he would rise to become a mid-level bureaucrat. <laughs> who knew that like, like that, that dude would show, you know, lacking self-confidence, not knowing what he could do. Like that's where it all started, you know? And, and just being up there and, and standing there on the peak and just remembering like, for so much of my life, this is what it was all about. And in a greater sense, it still is, you know, just chasing that, that peak and that, that sunset and chasing the experience. And, you know, when you get knocked down and you're having a tough day, you pick yourself up and you just love where you are and you keep going. And it's easier to love where you are when you're looking at a beautiful sunset. And there was a million moments like that and, and being there. And then, you know, like, like some of my, I mean, there's a bunch of them, but some of my really best friends on the ranch drove down and we all hung out afterwards in Cimarron at, at, at someone's garage and just being around these people who meant so much to me. And it was, it was, I was so humbled that these people would, would drive down, you know, Trish Daly and, and, and I mean, a whole bunch of them, uh, Trish Seifert, I guess her name is now. And, you know, a whole bunch of them, 
Rusty and I make a start naming names. And it's funny, I, a lot of these things end up like, oh, this guy, that guy, this girl, that girl, that girl. And I try not to do too much to name names because it's just a list of names, but I try to put it in context. But like people that that you just form these deep bonds with. And I just stumbled that they thought it was worth it to come all this distance just for a night of hanging out, you know? And, and, um, yeah, I mean, so I think I missed any of it, but I just, it's like, it was always a part of me that came forward and was buried a little bit. It came forward and it was just so, you know, just being in there. And so many times I just stopped and, and it was like, so my first summer, as a camper was 1987. So 35 years ago, if my math is right. And I started out at, at Abreu. And so when we passed through Abreu, I was like, guys, 35 years ago, almost to the week I was here. And they all like started applauding. And I was like, you know, it was so cool. Um, and I realized I'm not telling a coherent story here, but it, it's just, again, I didn't miss it per se. Cause I think my time there had come, I can't, I left at the right time, but, and that reason I'm grateful and I just more grateful to be there and have my kids there. And yeah, yeah, it was amazing. Amazing. Isn't the right adjective. I don't know what it is, but it was just being there and smelling the, and seeing the things and, and having a load on my back and thinking about, you know, that all that had passed before and was still to come in terms of the future, you know, the staff and the future was just, it was just humbling and and, an honor really was. I love how Philmont staffers, they show up for each other. I'm so glad that your friends came down for that last night. We were on the trail and her name is now Megan Tillison. And she was a ranger back in the teens, I think. And we were at, at Crooked and we just started talking. And you know how you do with people like that. You're like, suddenly they're, you're, you're you know, and, and I was like, hey, you know, a crew of us are getting together afterwards. You know, when we get off the trail. We're the same itinerary date, you know, start date and you're on the team, come join us. You know, you're on the team. And so she's on the team now. And then Eddie, our ranger dude hiked up to, he did cons with us. And then he hiked up to meet us on the tooth and then hiked in with us. I was like, dude, you don't have a crew tomorrow. You're on the team. Come on. Yeah. And so yeah. suddenly the team is expanding because it's the team. And it's, you know, like you said, it's, it's like when you get people with that kind of mindset, it doesn't take long to know and it doesn't take long to, to click and to yeah. bond, you know, and, and that's another thing to be grateful for. It's kind of also the like, um, oh, hey, you know, like if you're a Philmont person, knock on my door. You have a place to stay. You have a meal. Anytime, you know, I'm in Iowa, knock on my door. It's just that that yeah. showing up element that I, I well, love. Well, it's like like Spivey, right? Spivey is this rugged ranching farrier, you know, <laughs> cowboy dude, you know, from wherever he's from a Western movie. And I'm this diplomat who lives all around. But if that dude showed up my, my door at 2 AM, I'd be like, come on in, dude, let's get some coffee. What do you need? You know what I mean? Like, and that he's just one of like a hundred and you couldn't think of more people who are more in some respects, more opposite, but that still somehow have that, that common, common bond, you know? Yeah. It's a thing of beauty. It's that I feel really, like you said, humbled and grateful to be a part of the team. Okay. So speaking of people and lists of names, is there a, do you have a, a few people you'd like to nominate to be on the show? Yeah, I know. I know. Allie nominated Trish Seifert. She's got a great story to tell. Jonathan Hauk, who was my pre, this, one of my predecessors at Head Rock Cedo, he's now the Gunnison County Commissioner, and used to be Mayor of Gunnison. And like when our troop does uh, citizenship of the community, we adopt Gunnison County, Colorado as our community, and we do Zoom sessions with him, and he's absolutely fantastic. Hunter Syme works out for the BLM in I forget where, but. Yeah, I think he'd be a cool guy to to talk to. Um, 
Daryl Trusty, if you could dig him up, is a doctor out in West Virginia. David Goldfin- Goldfine, I think his name is. He's a f- retired Air Force chief of staff, like senior ranking guy in the whole Air Force. He was a ranger for a while. If you could get him, that would be really cool. There's probably more, but that's a probably good a good start. You can always send me people after the fact too. Anyone who's listening can send me nominations. Thank you for the list. Uh, you know, sorry, Jim Catchmore, my former like like he was my co-advisor. One of my co- he was a good story. Paul Backus lives out in the Czech Republic. Would be a cool story. Yeah, I, I could go on probably. So yeah, I'm like, why didn't you mention me? I'm like, oh, sorry, dude. That's all good. <laughs> it's content for days, right? It's just endless. I'm sure you have no shortage of of no, not at all. It's a it's a great problem to have. Okay, a couple final questions. You might know that I like to ask interviewees if they have an eleventh essential. Uh, this can be like an actual tool that you like to keep with you when you're hiking, or more of like a spiritual mentality that you keep in the back of your mind all the time. Yeah. And I remember when I was listening to one of them, I was like, oh yeah. And I had an, I had a thought, well, what would mine be? And I remember what they were. Um, I think the first essential is the right mindset, the love uh, for what you're doing, where you are. To me, that's, that would be number zero or number one. It bumps everything down. Then whatever's number 10 is now the 11th essential. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of a piece of physical equipment, um, let me, okay. let me let's keep talking yeah. about it. I'm sure it'll come to me. Um, do you have a song? Like if you were to close your episode with a song, favorite Philmont tune, what would you pick? Well, I Don't Mind is a great one from the first Tabasco Donkeys album. I love uh, Caroline in My Mind, I think it is, the James Taylor song. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, I'll leave it. They're, they're, I'm sure the minute we stop, I'm like, oh, and this one, and that one, and this one, and that one. But those are two <laughs> really good ones, you know, mellow are- acoustic songs. Um, I think we need to like, uh, maybe do like a third Tabasco donkeys album or something. And just, we need to get some music. I I have this like vision of doing like a Philmont concert or I don't know what it would be called. Like fest music festival. I think that'd be fun. (laughs) I would love that. Yeah. So, so Larry, if you're listening, you know how to get in touch. I'm on WhatsApp, buddy. Maybe we could do it somewhere exotic and foreign and you can host. (laughs) Okay. 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 Uh, We can make that work. Awesome. Um, do you have like a piece of Philmont memorabilia that you keep in your living space or you always kind of really cherish? I do. And not as much as, as people f- might think. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But I have an Ansel Adams, framed Ansel Adams photo of the, the sun rising, like the, the storm over the plains from Philmont. And oh, I still have the Philmont fleece vest that I bought like in 1996 that I wear all the time. It's yeah. in my luggage here. And that's the two main things, you know, for me, it's like, I don't need a, I don't feel the need to be ostentatious in how to display it because everything I am is film on. Um, you know, like, like I wouldn't be where I am if it weren't for that place. Like it's all in here. And I, I, I remember having a discussion with PJ Palmer. PJ would be another interesting interview. I don't know if people suggested him. And actually when I was a refugee coordinator, you know, he, PJ is, is a doctor who has established a clinic for refugees and also a scout troop for refugees. And they were just on the ranch actually. And then Avery Kong is another guy and Kevin Ferdinand are both two interesting guys I would consider talking to as well, um, who are involved with that troop. But like when I was the refugee coordinator for South Asia, some of the refugees I helped resettle ended up in Denver and in presumably potentially in PJ's care, some of these Bhutanese refugees. Um, but PJ once years, years later, I was talking, he's like, you don't really, you know, show off all your Philmont, you know, you don't have all this Philmont gear. And I said, yeah, I, I represent Philmont by who I am, you know, like, like 
it wouldn't be me, you know, if it weren't for Philmont. And like, like I said, like, it seems like this circuitous path around the globe, but it really, it's like a circle that has it at its center, the ranch. And, and like, I, I guess like my favorite piece of Philmont memorabilia is me. <laughs> that might sound a bit like egotistical, but like, you know, it's like, uh, we wouldn't be, well, of course we wouldn't be talking if I never come to Philmont because it's a Philmont podcast, but like, I wouldn't be who I am or where I am and as happy and content and grateful for everything as I am, if it weren't for those experiences. So, you know, have enough to keep me going and enough to, yeah, like in our house is a really nice portrait, but it's the stories, the, the songs, the, and now my kids are like telling their own stories and it's like, yes, that's what, you know, like, yeah, I don't need a something on the wall to remind me of that. That's all that's in your heart, you know? Yeah. It just ripples and continues to impact the people around yeah. you. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, that's all I've got for you today. Is there anything, you know, I missed or anything else you want to share with people listening? I don't know, man. Um, I love that there's this community of people that have this thing that they love together in common. Like, I just love that. And yeah. And, and that, that has so much to it that you can become like instant friends with someone you meet at Crooked Creek and you can see someone you haven't seen since 1998 and just be in the zone with them just like you were. And I love that it's continuing to grow and evolve and that we have this place we love so much, you know, and I'll never stop being grateful for, for everything it's given to me, you know? <laughs> um, and if Jeremy spot me, can cry. I can, I can cry too. Yeah. Um, amen. <laughs> and, uh, he's going to mess. He was like, what the hell, man? But, uh, no, I, I, I love it. And, uh, I don't know. I'm just grateful that such a place exists and is so special to all of us. And also, by the way, very grateful for the opportunity to come and share with you. I really appreciate the, the invite and, and hope I can live up to the long list of really impressive guests you've, you've had. Yeah. It's been, I really appreciate it. I realized what my 11th essential was, is my shemag. Shemag is a traditional Afghan scarf. I got mine in Kabul and you can use it for all kinds of things. You can use it as a tablecloth even, or what I used it for mostly was just to wear around my neck to keep the sun off the back of my neck. Um, it also has a personal meaning to me because I got mine in Afghanistan and I keep it around and I use it as a reminder of the, the three years I spent there away from my family and the sacrifice we made to to work on all these issues of, of helping the Afghans and working on the peace process and things like that. So has a lot of personal significance to me and it's also very functional and I think it also looks a little bit stylish. <laughs>